Well, we find ourselves today in 2 Samuel 23, beginning with verse 13. I want to encourage you to turn there. 2 Samuel 23. We'll read verses 13 through 17. If you would, let's stand as we read God's holy, perfect, inspired word. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And, and David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. And then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Let's pray. Lord, as we read this passage, and in some ways it seems strange to be placed in the midst of the stories that were near the end of David's life, Lord, help us to understand what you intended by your Spirit to put this particular passage here, at this place in the book. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, one of, the, one of the points, assertions I've made throughout this study of First and Second Samuel is that the whole Bible directs us to worship God and prepares us for Christ. And the temptation is to challenge that statement by pointing to passages that appear to have no relation to him at all, passages like genealogical lists in the Old Testament, or stories today like our passage that relate about what this person did or what that person said and that just seems like a historical account that how would you find Christ in all of that? Well, as we've seen in, in our study of First and Second Samuel, every passage has revealed something about our sin nature, something about God's grace, and in combining those two, why we need a Savior, and how redemption changes everything. And that is also true of 2 Samuel 23, as we'll see. In this chapter, we see an illustration of an important Old Testament concept. It's the concept of covenantal loyalty. The reasons why I'm using those two words together. Hebrew language calls it Chesed, and it's not actually, that word's not translated covenantal loyalty in the scriptures, I think primarily because most people wouldn't understand what that means. Instead, most of the time you'll find the English term loving kindness. You've seen that before, right? Or steadfast love. And in 2 Samuel 23, what we see close up is this steadfast love, this loving kindness, this covenantal loyalty up front and personal in this relationship that David's men have for him as 
their chief. Now, he is not yet king. In other words, the, the gift of loving kindness that David's men give him is significant in teaching us about God's steadfast love for us. We're going to look for this picture as it plays itself out in their relationship to David. And then we're going to see what is it about this covenantal loyalty and devotion that the men have for David that causes David to turn around and worship God. And we're going to ask this important question. What should that look like in the body of Christ? What should this loyalty and devotion look like to one another and what should be the result that is produced in us? I said a moment ago that the idea of covenantal loyalty is is not familiar to most modern readers. For Old Testament Israel, that would have been more of a tribal loyalty. And perhaps the closest thing we have today to the to a type of tribal loyalty that we see in Israel is the type of devotion that we observe in sports. Many of you know that over the past decade that I got together with my father every other year to slowly work down his bucket list of visiting every major league baseball stadium. Well, last summer we finished that list and we have visited every single major league baseball park in the nation, including in Canada. And whenever we were at stadiums where there were playoff contenders, you could tell that the people in attendance were convinced. They were convinced that their team was going to be the national champions. And that wasn't just an intellectual or detached belief, right? Each team demanded loyalty from their fans, And they expected their followers to be fanatics, which is where we get the word fan from. And the team followers were indeed loyal because as we neared those stadiums and as we walked through those parking lots and then as we entered the stadiums themselves, we often felt like foreigners. They're all dressed up. They're all carrying in the paraphernalia of their team. And the feeling of being out of place was even more enhanced when we entered the stadium of an American League playoff contender because my dad always insisted every game on wearing the red color of California Angels, as well as the hat and the jacket. So we would walk in. Sometimes I was wondering, are we going to expect trouble? I am quite serious to say that we were never on camera. Camera would never show my dad in his Angels outfit, right? Anyone ever been to the Oakland Raiders games when they used to be in Oakland? You know what I'm talking about. You didn't want to be supporting a different team and go to the Oakland Raiders games. In Europe, it's even worse. They tear down stands at soccer matches and rugby matches. And I I read this illustration recently in Donald Whitney's book, Spiritual Disciplines in the Church. He says, Giles Giles Pellerin, 87 years old, recently attended his, fill in the blank, what game, consecutive USC football game did he attend? 750th. Consecutive game. Home or away. He never missed a game. He traveled wherever the team went. 
One year he had an emergency appendectomy just five days before a game. He was still hospitalized on Saturday and told the nurses he was going for a walk. <laughs> Instead, he went to the stadium. Now, why make such sacrifices to identify with an athletic team, of all things, with a sports team? Pellerin's answer was, that's just a part of being a fan. Now, you still, some of you can't identify with that. But, you know, I think when we look at those who are truly fanatics and following a particular tribe, you know, a sports team, we see a little bit of, of what I'm talking about when it comes to this tribal loyalty amongst Israel. We even have seen this not only lately in sports, but in the recent invasion of Ukraine. We've seen this intentional patriotic loyalty of various Ukrainian athletes and composers and more that take the opportunity in the midst of their event to show their alignment with their country. Well, what I want you to see in those examples is that strong loyalty includes a type of intense devotion, and that's what we find in David's men. And we're not sure what period this is in the life of David. It may actually and probably is much earlier. And so it's an odd insertion of this event in the midst of uh, kind of a a list of things that, that are revealing some of David's failures, as we've seen over the past weeks and we'll see next week, that it goes back in time. I think it's a more poignant insertion, actually, because what we have is failure, failure, failure. And then David, back in the early times when, when his men were covenantally loyal, when he was worshiping God, and then failure. It's a, it's a poignant moment for us. Whatever time it was, it was when the Philistines were still in control of Bethlehem. David and his men were in the wilderness, hiding out in a cave. And it's likely before the period of Saul's death. And when you look at this, when you read this passage, and then when you look at some of the exploits of these men, it makes me think of when, as a child, I was fascinated by the legend of King Arthur. Perhaps a lot of you are fascinated by the same thing. I mean, certainly there have been plenty of movies and Broadway plays and books written about Arthur Pendragon, the son of Uther, who wielded the mighty sword Excalibur, right? You all know the story. And he had a, what type of table? He had a round table around which were knights like Lancelot and Gawain and Percival. And I mean, you could name all the knights, right? Some of you could. And these knights had mighty exploits, and they were legendary around the round table. You might see 2 Samuel 23 in the same way as David and his mighty knights. His round table, if you will, of, of these mighty men whose, like I said, their exploits are described. Some of them uh, defeating five times as many men as, as themselves in these small spaces, right? Defeating wild animals and so on. And we're told that these men came to David as volunteers, and at some point, three of them heard David on a hot afternoon say, oh, that someone would give me a drink 
from the water, not just water of the nearest brook, but the water specifically from the well in Bethlehem. And understand, David is expressing a wish. Even the form of the statement in Hebrew is clear that it's not him saying, men, go get me a drink from the well in Bethlehem. It's him saying, oh, this would be wonderful to have a drink from this well. But these men were covenantally loyal. They were not just the men who would fight by his side, but they were devoted to him so that when he expressed a desire and a, a longing of his heart, they said, the first thing they said in their mind was, how can we make this come true? How can we satisfy this for our brother and our Lord? And so one of them asks, possibly, don't know what the conversation was like, but you heard what the chief said? Yeah, I heard him. He wants water from the well in Bethlehem. Another said, well, let's go and get it. And so they left to get the water. It's no more difficult than grabbing a gallon jug and going down to Walmart, right, and getting some purified water. Not at all. The well of Bethlehem is guarded by the Philistines. It's by the gate, which is where the administrative center, the command post, would have been. In other words, it's right at the heart of the Philistine guard. And so when David says he wishes that he had water from Bethlehem, he is wishing for something that in most of our minds would have been completely unattainable. And certainly something that if we were in the place of these men, just in our normal state of mind, we would go, well, is there anything else we could do? Maybe if he wants water from the well, a good substitute would be to go find some water from the spring. Or maybe we would just calculate the odds of making it, and we'd say, well, that's not something that's going to happen. I wish I could have that water too. But that's not what happens with these men. And we don't know why he wanted the water. Perhaps it was partly nostalgia. David, born in Bethlehem, right? Probably knew the well well and had good memories about the place. And maybe he liked the water. Some of you are nostalgic about places where you were born and raised. But if it was nostalgia, I don't think it was just nostalgia by itself I think it was an expression of David's longing. He was the Lord's anointed. He knew that God had established him to be king over all the land. And, and here he was, anointed to be king, hiding out in a cave. His hometown is run, overrun, and guarded by the enemy doesn't quite seem like being a king. And he couldn't go to the well of his birth and, and get a drink of water. And so on this hot afternoon, David, likely thirsty, said in his heart, Lord, when will all of this be over? When will your promises to me be settled and I can rest? Wouldn't it be just wonderful to be there, back at home, at a well, that I remember having a drink of fresh water and this is all done. 
But the three men, they hear what his longing is, and so they go out across the desert. We're not told many details at all. We don't know how the Philistine army was organized or who was on watch duty. All that we know is that verse 14 says there was a band. Some of your versions have a host because the number is a large group of Philistines. And what happened when the first shouts went up from the guards? I said the well was by the gate. So it's, it's not like a sneak into the well type of operation, right? You're going you're gonna to struggle. It's not going to be easy. And we're not given many details because I don't think that we're expected to focus on the how of all of this. We're not told how they drew water from the well, how many Philistines died, or whether they were pursued. A lot of you know I send the rough draft of my sermons to my dad, and when I was talking to him last night, he said, you know, I was just about to sit down to read your sermon, and I had been working outside, and ironically, I had carried in a bucket of water. And so when I read this section of the sermon, I was thinking, that was heavy. You know, just a little detail, right, of personal experience where you go, yeah, we never think about the fact that they have to lug this water. Are they running? Are they being pursued? Are they having to set it down every once in a while, fight for a little bit, and then carry the water the rest of the way? They have to make it all the way back. But they desire to please their king. And so I want you to put yourself in the place of one of these three mighty men. They're tired, bloody perhaps, no doubt proud. Right? And I'm not saying proud in a, you know, give me a high five, look at what I've done type of pride. But proud in, we are we're so happy we were able to meet this longing of our chief. Proud because you're able to go up and say, remember how you said you wanted a little bit of water from the well of Bethlehem? Well, and then here it is. And you can envision broad smiles, exhaustion, the, the, the surprise of the men, and, and probably it's contagious among them going, all right, right? But look at verse 16. It's one of the greatest unexpected responses in Scripture. He does something that disappoints a lot of the commentators. David takes the water and he pours it on the ground. And friends, I'm not not thinking that he took the the water and it (laughs) in some kind of some kind of mean way. Or that he said, What in the world have you done? You risked your life. I don't think that at all. I think it was a David on his knees pouring the water out in a prayer upon the ground. Why? Those three men, at the risk of their lives, had gotten David the water he had longed for. And when they brought it to him, he pours it out, and lest we be tempted to think this is disrespectful or a heartless response, what is happening here? Is he saying, essentially, men, 
I do not deserve this. This is not just water. What does he say? This is your blood. You put your lives on the line to get this water for me. I can't take it. I can't just treat it like it's common water. There's only one thing I can do with this water. I have to give it to the Lord. It's too holy. That's what David's saying. And as a good leader, he knew that this water was not his prize. This was not something that he could take for granted, the kind of loyalty that these men have shown. He saw this is God's work in their hearts, in their lives, and therefore he wants to give it back to God. And what he does is worship. And some of you will be leaders one day. Other people will honor you for the work that you do, and some will show you great devotion. And you must, like David, receive that for what it is devotion given to you in the name of the Lord, and therefore devotion to God. You must receive that gift of loving kindness, that gift of loyalty, and you must turn and turn offer it to God in devotion to Him. That's what the Apostle Paul does in the letter of Philippians. Philippians has sent him a gift. And what does he say about that gift? He says, this gift that you gave me is an aroma of what? Of sweet sacrifice. To me? Oh, I can't believe it. I've been so influential in your lives. I, it's a sweet aroma of sacrifice to me. No, he says it's aroma of sweet sacrifice that is well-pleasing to God. Beware of thinking that, of course, people should be devoted to you. Or that you deserve to be treated with great respect and sacrifice. There are people in any organization who are so ready to serve, so ready to show real devotion that you have to be a little careful about what you say in front of them. Maybe you have friends or family members that are like that. All you have to do is say something and they will go and do it. They're like David's mighty men. In fact, if it weren't people for people like that, I think the ministry of the church throughout time would have had difficulty moving forward. Because real ministry, long-term ministry, does not just come about through ministers who have learned the art of arm-twisting and bullying. You can, you can do short-term motivation that way in an, in an environment of fear. And it lasts for a while, but it breeds discontentment and disloyalty, not loyalty. Truly, though, the love of God compels all of us to have the attitude of David's mighty men. And when that attitude is shown, it must be received in the same spirit. And it's, it's sad when you find the attitude among Christian men and women who think they have everything coming to them, who when they are brought water from Bethlehem, say, where's the ice? Parents, beware that attitude. Sometimes we are so critical of our children that even when they do something for us, we can only criticize 
the way they did it instead of realizing that they've served us. And husbands and wives, beware that attitude towards one another. And getting back to our passage, let me point out something else that David does. When he gives to God the gift of his men's devotion, he is claiming God's promises. David wanted, I believe, the water from Bethlehem because he wanted a sign that God would give them victory. And what a sign it was. These men fought through the hosts of the Philistine army and came back with the water of Bethlehem. If by God's power these three men could fight their way to Bethlehem, God knew, or David knew that God was going to give them the victory. What a great boost to his faith in that moment. It became a pledge of victory that David knew God would give him. And isn't it amazing that when we see the devotion of David's men to him and the devotion of David to the Lord, that we are ultimately led to God's loyalty to his people. God would give the victory to David. And in fact, here's an amazing truth. That, that word that I started with, chesed, which is that loving kindness and covenantal devotion, it's used in the Old Testament very rarely about men to men. Nor even of the devotion of men to God. The majority of the time, it's used in describing God's devotion to us, his people. If you think about that, it was the Lord who had given David water from Bethlehem. It was God's faithfulness to David that had given him the mighty men with the ability to get the water. David, the Lord's anointed, knew the fiercely loyal devotion of his God. So where is Christ in all this? Well, let me read with you the next few verses after our passage. Go down to verse 35. Hezro of Carmel, Parai the Arbite, Egal the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani the Gadite, Zelik the Ammonite, Nalrai the Biroth of Biroth, the armor bearer of Joab and the son of Zariah, Ira the Ithrite, Garab the Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. This chapter about David's mighty men who are devoted to David, ready to lay down their lives for him, closes with a list of 37 mighty men, and the last one to be named is Uriah. And you know who that is. Later, when David was well established in his kingdom, we just read about this a few weeks ago. And he, as his eyes said on Bathsheba, she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And you'll also remember that when Bathsheba conceived a child and Uriah came back from battle, David does the despicable thing of trying to convince him to go home to Bathsheba. But Uriah stays at the palace. Why? Why does he stay at the palace? Because he is devoted to David. Because he is loyal to David. David had brought him back from the army. He didn't know what the king had in mind, but he was loyal. He would not go home and treat it like it was a break. He was determined in his... David could not convince him. He he kept 
saying different alternative solutions. Just, just go home, just enjoy a drink, just, just whatever. And Uriah sleeps out at the palace. No. I am loyal to you. And so David puts him back in battle with the message to the general Joab to put him in the front line and pull back from battle so that Uriah will be the first to die. So why do we have the account of 2 Samuel 23 in the Old Testament? Beyond its poignancy, this account shows us God's faithfulness to David. And this account that by the mention of Uriah so frankly implies David's later unfaithfulness to God shows us that the man who can demonstrate great wisdom, even in this moment of, of worshiping God with the right response years before, would one day murder one of these men, one of these loyal men. And yet God will continue to show him faithfulness. Why does the word of God give us this? It gives us this because these narratives of God's dealings with Israel lead us forward to the great work of salvation that God will do when he sends his only begotten son. It is to show us that even the greatest of men, David, is less than adequate as a king. He does have these good moments, but he is still a mighty sinner. And in this event that the Holy Spirit inspired to be written down in the Bible, we see the failings of the best king humanity has ever produced, a man whom God later describes as a man brought to be after his own heart, And those we are reminded by contrast of Jesus Christ, the true King. You see, we are not called to make our earthly loyalties ultimate. There are dangers in utter devotion to men. There is only one who deserves our ultimate devotion, and that one is Jesus Christ. And he is the one who never betrays or disappoints. He is the one who is ever true to his word and to himself. And it is to Jesus Christ that we bring our offering of devotion. If David's men could be so devoted to him, how ought we be to be devoted to one another and to Jesus Christ? What were David's men trying to do? talked about it earlier. They were trying to surprise him by meeting the desire of his heart. If David had said, I want volunteers for a raid against Bethlehem, they would have volunteered. All David did was express a wish and these went and did what he desired. And you can imagine that when they brought the water back that they anticipated the opportunity to surprise David with the measure of their devotion. They wanted him to see When was the last time you tried to surprise your brothers and sisters in Christ? When was the last time that as as you heard the longing of their heart, you thought, "How, how can I help this brother or sister realize this? Oh, I wish 
I could be motivated to do such and such. I wish I would pray more. I wish that, you know, I could remember more of the Bible. And does your, does your heart get moved by a statement like that and go, well, how can I help meet this longing of my brother or sister's heart? What can I be to be an encouragement, an exhorter in their life to, re- to be reading the Bible? Can I, can I be giving them some regular calls, sending them some texts? How are you doing in your reading? Can I read in a program with them? So we have something to talk about on Sundays. They want to become people that are better at prayer. Can I set on my own calendar a reminder to myself to be, to say, let's pray together this week. Romans 12.10 says, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. And we've quoted that verse around here many times in the past, but now read that same verse. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor against the backdrop of what we've heard today. How would you describe your devotion and loyalty to your other family members in the family of God? And then given how we see that David was motivated to worship God as a result of the loyalty and devotion of his men, how are you spurring on your brothers and sisters to worship and good works? As Hebrews 10.24 says, let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And that phrase, consider how to stir up one another, suggests something that takes time and effort and purpose and intention. I think we're supposed to go beyond what we see with the mighty men. They impulsively responded to David in that moment. It was like David said something and and then they did it. But if we're called upon to consider, maybe that means sometimes we take the initiative to draw out the longing in our brothers and sisters. We ask questions like, what do you hope to, to see in your life in the next few months? What are some of your goals for your family? How are you doing in your walk with the Lord Jesus? And then as we ask those intentional questions, we we meditate upon their answers and we consider, how can I stir this person towards love and good works? How can I be an instrument of mercy and comfort and grace in their life? Don't forget that by his Holy Spirit, God himself indwells genuinely converted believers. We aren't God, and he isn't perfectly expressed through us, but even so, he does live inside his people, and he communicates himself through them to impart grace. He uses you. He uses you to sustain his people. And what about your devotion and loyalty to God? Devotion isn't just going through the routines. It comes out of a heart that is dedicated. And then, what I like to think about is this picture of David as he turns to the Lord and pours it out. 
I like to see Jesus there. As Jesus receives our devotion, and he takes it and he offers it himself like David to the Father. Our devotion is imperfect, and it is it is cleansed and perfected by our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And it calls us to see ourselves in that position of the men before David as if we are as believers before Jesus and we hear what he longs for. And we respond like these men to go do it even at great cost to ourselves. If Jesus said, I'd like to offer living water to the Central Valley, would you be one of the three that immediately thought about how to accomplish that at great odds against you? Even if it meant fighting the enemy at Central Headquarters? At the well by the gate? Well, Jesus takes that devotion as you come back and you say, you know, whatever... Whether you think it was accomplished or not, you went out and you bring it back and he takes that devotion from you and he offers it up like David to the Father to the praise of his name. And not only does he do that, but he does even more than David. He's not only our Lord and our King, but he is also our warrior. Because you know what? Those men went out by themselves But God puts on his helmet, his sword, and goes to the defense of his people. Like Joshua meeting the captain of the Lord's host. Are you for us or against us? Neither. (laughs) I'm for the Lord. And if you are for the Lord, well then, we're fighting on the same side, right? Right? But imagine all of those moments when the Lord's host accomplishing his purpose, going out before his people, like the Ark of the Covenant carried out before the army, going out recognizing that it's God that is fighting these battles. So Jesus is even greater than David because Jesus not only takes our devotion, but he makes it possible for us to accomplish what we would not have been able to accomplish. He goes out before us, he fills us with strength, and then he receives back our devotion, turns around and offers that as our high priest to the Father. David said, when the men brought that water back, I can't drink this, it is as it were your blood. But Jesus says to us, this cup is the cup of my blood. My blood shed for you. And so he not only goes at the risk of his own life, he gave his life that you might be able to bring devotion back to him. And there we begin to understand the meaning of God's devotion to us. And we should be overwhelmed and blessed by the thought of what God has done for us. Not a little something extra or a little surprise, but the incredible wonder of his grace that he has given us everything. His life, that is devotion. David, after his sin with Bathsheba, after he had been 
hearted for a long time following that sin was summoned to repentance as we saw by the prophet Nathan. And we have the 51st Psalm written as a result where he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your chesed, according to your steadfast love. And you go, how could David call out to God for covenantal loyalty? How could he call out to God for devotion in the face of such a heinous sin? Getting caught. Yes, being broken over that, but he was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He was, he was a hider. He was a liar. Have mercy on me according to your covenantal loyalty to me. Maybe as you read those words, you realize that's bold. Wouldn't he fear that if God were loyal to his covenant, that David would be destroyed instead? Would David not fear that God would treat him as he had treated Uriah? No, he calls out, he says, Oh God, be loyal to your own devotion. According to your mercy, have mercy on me. And that, friends, is the gospel. It is written at large across every page of Scripture, even in this strange little narrative of some men that go and get a drink of water for David. We see the heart of the gospel of this intense devotion that, yes, having towards one another spurs us on to worship and devotion, but even more so reveals the great devotion of God to us and the mercy of God to us. May that motivate you to worship the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thankful are thankful for these pictures of love and devotion and loyalty. Lord, I pray that we as believers would understand how significant it is that we should have that kind of love and loyalty for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We see what happened with the men and how they motivated David to worship. And I do pray that that would be reflected in our own body of believers here, that we would be so desiring to honor and outdo one another in good works that, Lord, we would be motivated to an ever greater worship. But Lord, may we not miss the biggest point of all. And that is this great devotion, this great service pictured between a man to a man Lord, is but a glimpse of the steadfast love that you have for us, your people. Even in the face of our sin, even in the face of David's sin, he could call out to you and ask you to have mercy, not because he deserved it, but because you are the very definition of mercy. And so according to your steadfast love, we pray that you would love us. According to your mercy, we pray that you would have mercy upon us. And Lord, we thank you. And now look forward to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.